I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I will say, it is to wage war by sea, land, and air, with all our might, and with all the strength that God can give us. Hi there, everybody, and welcome to another edition of The Podcast Goes To. Last week, we talked about The Shape of Water, and this week, The Podcast Goes To Darkest Hour, 2017 Best Picture nominee. I'm Matt, and joining me is my host, not co-host, we're equal partners in this, uh, Bob Klein. How's it going, Bob? Welcome welcome home. Great. Yeah, I'm uh, glad to be home, and I'm glad to be... <laughs> A host, not co-host. I think when there's two hosts, you're automatically a co-host, but uh, thank you for the shout-out. So uh, now that we're a little more organized and regrouped, I think we have a new system in place and how we're going to continue the podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we do. um, So we discussed uh, the logistics of putting 555 names in a hat we realized that might not be the best method of choosing a name. So uh, we came up with a a three-tier system. It's not a pyramid scheme. Don't worry. But we're going to choose a decade, and then we'll choose a specific year. And then from there, we'll have narrowed it down to five to ten nominees, and we will pick our winner at the end of the show. So throughout the show today, we'll be narrowing down our choices, getting ever closer to what next week's movie will be. But we are a long way from next week's movie. We have Darkest Hour to talk about. Winston Churchill, I guess it's a Winston Churchill biopic. It's a very small window into Winston Churchill's life. But um, yeah, and you got to you got to watch it on possibly the greatest the greatest screen you could possibly watch a movie on. Yeah, I watched it on an airplane, and uh, the guy next to me was actually watching Shape of Water. So. Uh, <laughs> Funny, funny precursor. We did our episode on Shape of Water, and the guy next to me was watching the movie. And after he finished it, I paid him five dollars to listen to our podcast and tell if it was any good. <laughs> no, you. <didn't. laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to, though. I wonder if I he really. Was I wonder if he was the one. So we did get one fan comment. Oh my God, we're blowing up, man. We are blowing up. Shout out to the fan, um, and we just want to give him. We just want to give Bad Boy Big Upset. A real shout out here on the podcast. Five stars, better than the Oscars. And he writes, it made me laugh, it made me cry. Hands down, the best podcast with two partially informed hosts. <laughs> <laughs> so I think he nailed it. That's that's pretty funny. Um, what does he mean by made him cry? <laughs> like like made he me laughed cry so hard la- he cried? Or like we like... Just brought him to tears with our performances. <laughs> Probably cried with, our... with laughter. And we had I guess a lot of, so. We had a lot of people sympathizing with you that there was not enough uh, amphibian genitalia on the last show, on the last um, episode. We had some reactions to that. So I think we're really hitting the core audience that we want to reach for this for this podcast. So I just want to quickly take it back before we jump into Darkest Hour. I want to just go back. So apparently last week. I claimed that Sally Hawkins was, like, new on the scene <laughs> in the acting world. So I just want to give a shout-out to some of the movies that 
she was in. She's also going to be in Paddington 2, which is coming out soon. But she was in Paddington 1. <laughs> <laughs> um, 2014 Godzilla movie. Blue Jasmine. That was one I actually heard of. Jane Eyre. And some other stuff. So uh, shout out to Sally Hawkins. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> maybe maybe she's big bad boy 12 or whoever her fan oh, is. Oh, bad boy big upset. <laughs> bad boy big upset. <laughs> what big what a twist boy. that would be. Yeah. Um, any other things we flubbed on the first episode? I mean, it was our first episode. Yeah, it was our first episode. It was a bit of a wild ride, but I think overall, I don't think it was too bad. I also want to bring up, we did an awesome segment, probably one of my favorite parts of the show. Yes, I did listen to it on the plane because I was really bored and I couldn't fall asleep. So we talked about movies that had fish in the title. Shape of Water doesn't have the word fish in the title. Um, so quickly, here are some movies with the word water in them. <laughs> oh, uh, thank you have... for doing this research for us, Bob. I know that many people are probably hankering for this. Yeah, there's uh, Hell or High Water. Oh, that was nominated for Best Picture last year. Pretty awesome movie. There's Lady in the Water. (laughs) Pretty terrible movie. The one thing I remember about that movie is Paul Giamatti's character. Isn't he the one who has, like, one really strong arm? Or no... Was that him who had one really strong arm and one really weak arm? No, that was someone else. That was someone else in, like, that weird motel. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) All I really remember about that is, like, the creepy trailers where some kid just lispers, Lady in the Water. (laughs) And then shout out to the SpongeBob movie, colon, Sponge Out of Water. Uh, I'm sure there are are others, like Water Horse or whatever. Um, It's called War Horse. No, there's a movie called Water Horse about, like, the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, no way, Uh, really? The one thing I remember about the SpongeBob movie, I never saw the second, I never saw Sponge Out of Water. I haven't seen that picture, that film just yet. Antonio Banderas as the villain, Burger Beard, (laughs) (laughs) is probably his best performance. Uh, Just throwing that out there. I just remember, um, I think I was in junior high school when the the original SpongeBob SquarePants movie came out, and um, we went opening night. And um, I was with a bunch of my buddies, like, this is like our big night out. And at the end of the movie, uh, one of my friends, Jared, he was like, oh, like we were talking about the movie. He's like, man, that's so weird that they're only playing it for one night. I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, the previews said only in theaters, you know, July 12th. I was like, no, man, that's just when it starts. And, like, I just remember feeling awful that, like, maybe the only reason he came to hang out with us was because he thought this is literally his only chance to see the SpongeBob movie. And, like, he's like, oh, I guess I got to go see it with these assholes. (laughs) Oh, God. That's pretty hilarious. So, without further ado, let's jump in and talk about our movie of the week, Darkest Hour. SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh. (laughs) I'll gladly if you wanna you wanna keep making more podcasts. <laughs> we'll just make we'll just make an Oscar podcast and a SpongeBob podcast. Oh man, maybe I'll, a podcast. I wonder <laughs> not if about any, movies. I wonder if anyone's done a SpongeBob podcast. But okay, so um, darkest hour. So I think uh, I think our first segment will uh, the podcast will go to. Um, let's talk about the story. So basically, the general plot is. Um, Winston Churchill is um, asked to be the prime minister of uh, Britain, and, and where they're on the brink of war. And this uh, guy Neville Chamberlain, who was the the prime minister before him, is uh, steps down, 
And um, this guy, Halifax, who everyone wants, he's like, no, this isn't my time. Uh, so, Cham- uh, so Winston Churchill comes in, and his immediate task is to determine whether he's going to go to peace talks with Hitler or if he's going to basically um, declare all-out uh, war. And uh, so the movie basically focuses on that conflict. Um, and meanwhile, uh, everyone in, uh, you know, everyone in the government wants him to t- sue for peace. And he just sort of feels like that's that's just not a logical course of action. And at the end of the movie, it turns out he was right and everyone else was wrong. So that's basically it, right? Yeah, I think that that pretty much sums it up. I feel like it was his party specifically that it was against him. There were three political parties at the time, if I'm getting that right, and his specific his specific political party was was his main opposition, um, Neville Chamberlain, uh, who was his predecessor, and then uh, Halifax, or as he calls him in the movie, Holy Fox. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if that was a real thing Churchill did, but it sounds like something he would have done. <laughs> Just give him some stupid nickname. So yeah, that was the story. I felt like story was one of the weaker aspects for me. I feel like it was a little a little slow, this movie. It was a little uneventful, which is interesting because it's a movie that takes place in the middle of World War II. Yeah, well, it was so. a little bit slow, and I felt like the little bit of drama that there was, it was felt very contrived for me because Halifax, who, by the way, Halifax is played by Robert Baratheon, from Game of Thrones, Stephen Delane. Have you? Do you watch Game of Thrones? I'm gonna say no. Okay, I don't. That, <laughs> you, you had to think about it. Um, so, so in Game of Thrones, without giving anything away, he plays a very power hungry character. So it was very weird seeing this actor portray someone who was the exact opposite. But therein lies the problem with the drama, which is that he Halifax in an, in one of the opening scenes turns down the chance to be the prime minister. He says that he doesn't think it's his time. He then teams up with Chamberlain and spends the rest of the movie trying to overthrow Winston Churchill and take control as prime minister, which made no sense to me whatsoever. Like, why would you, you, with an opportunity to, to take that position, turn it down, and then immediately do a 180 and try and try and become, it just didn't, I don't know, it didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, so what I got from the movie, because that was the first thing that happened. It's like, everyone wanted this guy, and then it goes to him on the table. They were, like, spinning around the table. Oh, yeah, they're like, Halifax. Oh, there's only one. It's Halifax. And I'm thinking, why are they talking about Halifax? Like, are they all going there? (laughs) It's basically scene number two. We haven't seen Winston Churchill yet, uh, which is interesting because the rest of the movie from then on, it's just him. Um yeah, so we haven't seen Churchill yet, and they're all just like, Halifax, Halifax, Halifax. They spin around the table, and then it gets to him, and he's like, eh, no. <laughs> so what I got from that is he was, since they were losing the war and in the middle of the war, I think he was just scared to take the heat. Um, he still wanted his input because he was on the board anyway, and he just wanted someone like Churchill who they can just stick up there, and if he does what he wanted, Halifax wanted, great, they got what they wanted, and everything was fine, and if he did something he didn't wanted, then Churchill takes the heat, not him. I feel like he just was scared of, you know, being in the hot seat. Yeah, especially uh, because Chamberlain had, had basically just been failing them this whole time. Like, Chamberlain has been basically negotiating with Hitler 
um, via um, Mussolini, who's the dictator in Italy, and Mussolini was brokering these peace talks. And every time they would have a peace talk, or uh, not a peace talk, but you know some sort of negotiation, he would give in to Hitler's demands, and Hitler would see that as an opportunity. And this is, by the way, this is sort of like actual historical context here, is that Chamberlain was a, I mean, he was not a wartime prime minister. And so he would give in to all these demands because he thought, okay, this will, this will be the agreement that sort of prevents an invasion. And Hitler just saw that as a chance to take more power and continue onward through Europe. So, so basically he was just a bitch. <laughs> and Hitler saw that and said, like, okay, we need someone who isn't a bitch. But then they put in Churchill, who is ready to, like, go, like, throw down, and they basically do exactly what you said, which is disagree with him every step of the way. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. I thought it would have been cool to see some of, the, like, the the battle scenes that were going on during the movie to kind of maybe be intercut with the film. If only maybe there they was... should have just... If there was only there was some movie that takes like some sort of they just like it's like they they show us like the Battle of Dunkirk maybe it's part of the evacuation I would have loved to have seen that movie yeah starring Harry Styles and completely disorientingly out of order wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> well, now you kind of lost me a little bit but maybe I would give that one a try <laughs> hey I love me some Harry Styles so we're talking about Dunkirk of course uh kind of interesting how. These two movies about very similar subject matters came out the same year and were both nominated for Best Picture. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, yeah. It reminded me of back when um, Armageddon and Deep Impact came out at the same time, only if those two movies were, like, <laughs> Best Picture quality. But it, what's what's weird is, like, they were they were about the same two weeks in history, but completely different. Like, it wasn't, like, two different production companies decided to make a movie about the evacuation of Dunkirk and it was like their interpretation of it. So I wonder why that was. It's almost like maybe I mean they're both sort of unsung hero tales. I mean Winston Churchill's not an unsung hero but it's an aspect of the war that you don't really have a lot of nonfiction narrative movies being made about them maybe. I mean that's the only reason I could say that that they chose this particular time period. Yeah, that's it's really interesting. So as far as I know we talked about a little bit about the history and the film. Are there any moments you dug up that were historically inaccurate or things that didn't work or were accurate? Like what what stood out to you there? Well, what's what stood out to me was um so okay, so as I said, Churchill is very um on the fence about, oh, do I go to war? Do I, you know, sue for peace? And he decides um, towards the end of the movie that he's going to go AWOL and ride a subway train. And so he gets on the subway, and everyone's, like, in awe to see him, and he just starts chatting it up with the locals, and uh, eventually he comes to the question of, so what would you guys do if Hitler wanted peace? And everyone's like, no, you got to fight. You have to fight to the death. And he's like, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. And he then he goes and, you know, he gives one of his famous speeches. And that was very historically inaccurate. I mean, um, Winston Churchill was known to sort of wander off, and um, but he never uh, rode the subway. Or, or he, he did once, but it was earlier in his life. But just the fact that this character, which we'll get in a little bit more into his character in the movie, 
it's just the fact that he would he would make this decision based off of going on a subway train and talking to random people. It just I don't think it speaks to how strong of a leader he was, even in those early days. So I found that to be inaccurate. But I think the better question is, at what point does historical inaccuracy sort of ruin a movie? And at, and at what point does it strengthen a movie? Yeah, that's a good point. It sucks because that was probably my favorite part of the movie. Then he rides the subway train and he gets the he's like, I've been listening to my fellow politicians this whole time. They're disagreeing with me. And then, you know, the British people, the real people just riding the subway, <laughs> you know, they all, you know, they all agree with him. And that's like a powerful moment and a really, you know, one of my favorite scenes. And, and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And then he reads the names of the people he met on the subway to like the other politician dudes to kind of prove his point. And I was like, oh, Maybe this really did happen. These are the actual names, and he read them out. And then I look it up, and my favorite scene in the movie uh, can didn't. Maybe it happened, but it probably didn't happen. So that was pretty disappointing. I think what's more, what's most disappointing about something like that is it undercuts. Like when I see movies in the future, I sort of question the more impossible things. Like when I saw American Sniper and like the the most impossible moment in that is that he s- supposedly sniped someone from 2100 feet away. And watching that I'm like, "Oh, they embellished it for the movie." And then you find out that it it supposedly really did happen. Like he really did snipe someone from 2000 feet, which is crazy. But I, I'm just so used to them embellishing in movies that it I didn't really think that that was real. So like the moment was sort of lost on me. And in this, the, the plot wasn't really intriguing enough for me to be drawn in to the point where even when something maybe didn't happen, I was still into it. Like it didn't, for me, it didn't really function as a movie that I was sitting and enjoying. It more functioned as like a artsy, like, oh, I, I like the camera work in this scene and I like the lighting in this scene, but I never was drawn into like what's going to happen next. Yeah. And another big thing, this will kind of segue us into talking about the acting, the character development. I really liked Lily James' character as the uh, his like secretary who typed all his speeches and stuff like that. But they kind of the movie kind of propped her up to be this this important person, you know. Like along the way, it's like, oh, this is gonna lead up to this moment where she somehow like saves Britain, you know, like like she <laughs> makes changes his mind or like comes through mm-hmm. somehow to make everything happen, which. I'm sure it didn't happen in real life anyway, but just how the movie kind of propped her up as this super important character. And then she kind of went nowhere and she just at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, uh, <laughs> at the end of the movie, she's just sitting there in the crowd, just smiling that he gave the speech that oh. she typed for him. Okay. Let's, okay. Let's <laughs> talk about this crowd for a second, because right off the, right off the bat, there is something that I was like nitpicky about, which is, um, he's Churchill's about to give his first speech and Chamberlain has like a little napkin and um, there's this like Joe Schmo in the crowd and he just looks like he's just like, where am I? How did I end up here? And so <laughs> like right on cue, someone leans over and is like, um, if Chamberlain wipes his forehead with that napkin, we're all going to cheer. But if he just if he doesn't do anything, then we're silent. And I was like, this is so dumb. Like he's explaining this to me. You know, he's not explaining it to the guy next to him. It was very much like a mansplaining moment to the audience. Where it's just like, this is what the napkin means. And I was like, come on. And then sure enough, the drama unfolds. He puts the napkin in his pocket and no one claps. And then there's like a moment where the old guy turns to the guy who doesn't belong there and is like, nope, 
and they're not clapping. This is this is a bad speech. <laughs> I was like, this is so dumb. But then in the end, the triumphant moment is um, he wipes his forehead, and everyone claps, and um, you know Lily James's character is there, and and she claps, and she plays um, Elizabeth Layton, who is a real person who really was his um, secretary. So that part at least was accurate. Yeah, so, and I think she was, um, they propped her up to be this important character because I feel like a lot of this story they probably got from her memoirs. She wrote a book on uh, on Churchill, kind of about, like, being her secretary and working, uh, his secretary and working with him and stuff like that. So I feel like they made her such an important character because she, she kind of tells a lot of these things that we're finding out about him in the movie. Oh, that's cool. See, like, I almost feel like that might have been a better movie if you made it from her perspective. Like it starts it actually actually we're introduced to him through her perspective because what happens is she goes up into his room and like the the curtains are drawn and he's revealed sitting in the bed all crotchety and cranky and he gets up and basically just yells at her and then she goes running down the stairs and then uh the wife gets in, uh, his wife gets involved played by um uh Chris and Scott Thomas who's actually pretty good um, as well. Uh, but also, again, a character who doesn't really go anywhere. And then she sort of puts Winston in her in his place. But from that moment on, we're focused then on Winston. Apparently that did happen, too. He kind of shouted at her her first day, and she ran away. So a little insight to his character. I like where we're going here with the, the characters and the actors. I want to keep talking about that, but... I think it's time to pick our decade. Ooh, this is exciting. <laughs> like, all right, so we had we have prevailing theories about what the, the film gods are going to give us, and mine is that um, we're going to be stuck in the 21st century. And what was your theory, Bob? I think it's going to be some movie that I've never heard about before. It's so. like you don't even know that it exists. <laughs> That's the kind of obscurity. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Watch it be another one from this year. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. All right. Are you ready to find out what our decade is? Let's let's do it. The podcast goes to the 1980s. Ooh, interesting. Still could be something I've never heard of, but uh... <laughs> That's true, but we're not as far back as like the 30s and 20s and so so there's a chance that we're going to know what we're what we're watching next week. That's exciting. Any any uh, 1980s Oscar nominees that kind of uh, stand out to you? Um, I really enjoyed, um, oh, you know what? I was going to say Kramer versus Kramer, but I'm pretty sure that was the 70s. I'm pretty sure that, that was a late 70s That would be a film movie. that I've never heard of. <laughs> You've never heard of Kramer versus Kramer? Something to do with Seinfeld? <laughs> no, that would be cool. No, it's um, no, it's not Seinfeld. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it if we end up picking it. So uh, <laughs> uh, we're going to take a little break and uh, we'll be back to you shortly. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we should prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary, for years, if necessary, alone.
welcome back. So, we were just talking about Darkest Hour, the characters. So, I just want to briefly give us what it was nominated for. So, this film did not win Best Picture, which we all know what won this year. Shape of Water, <laughs> our first episode. So, this film was nominated for Best Actor, Gary Oldman. Best Hair and Makeup Design. Cinematography production design and costume design so of course we all know that gary oldman won for best actor what are your thoughts on that um at first i thought this might have been a legacy award um because he's had such a good career and i know that dicaprio's award was sort of a legacy award but you know after watching the performance and watching some and you know listening to some churchill speeches and sort of seeing how, you know, the different mannerisms that he was described as having, for example, like he would often like gesture wildly, even when he was practicing his speeches, stuff like that. So that sort of really sold me. And then I actually read a story that um, Gary Oldman blew through like $30,000 worth of cigars to the point where he like <laughs> basically felt physically sick every day because he smoked so many cigars on set, uh, like, I read, of, like, I... <laughs> like a dozen a day. Yeah, I read that too. <laughs> That's a lot of... I never thought about that, you know, cigar budget <laughs> in your film. But Churchill, he smoked a lot of cigars and he drank a lot too. I guess Gary Oldman didn't drink <laughs> real alcohol. No, they don't really... Fo too. I mean, they focus on that a little bit, but they, I wouldn't say that they really harp on his drinking problem. Although there is one shot where um, when they're giving the toast uh, to him being prime minister and the wife's like... We've all had to make sacrifices. And then it, like, immediately cuts to one of his sons, and his kid, like, downs whatever it is, is that's in his glass. Kind of like, yeah, his kids are alcoholics, too. Which I thought was so melodramatic. <laughs> that's hilarious, because I watched the movie twice, once in theaters and once on the plane, and I did not pick up on that. Oh, yeah, it's, like, blatant. <laughs> like, we've all made sacrifices here. And, like, the cut to the son, like, chugging his champagne. This is so dumb. There were a few instances like that. There was also like um, the king makes makes a uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day line, which is so tired now. Like I've heard this line in at least half a dozen movies. I'm like, oh, yeah, man. but it probably started with the king actually saying <laughs> that about Winston Churchill. <laughs> That's oh, where it came from. Oh, that was actually a historically accurate um, <laughs> moment when he uttered that line. <laughs> So I personally, I thought Gary Oldman was amazing, well-deserving. He was my should-win and will-win pick for the Oscars uh, for Best Actor. I think he nailed it. Maybe unless James Franco was in the category, but uh, let's not go there right now. Um, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. Okay. Um, do you think this film would have done as well or been nominated for Best Picture or won Best Actor if a different British actor played churchill in the movie you mean like if daniel craig was subbed in or something yeah i'm wondering if you think like it had to be gary oldman or if there's some other actors out there you think would have done just as good or maybe even better oh well that's a, i mean that's a good question because i was thinking about this all week about you know we're, we're going through all the best picture nominees and i think it's important to question why a movie was nominated in the first place because everyone's idea of what a best what the best movie is is going to be different and to me this was not one of the best pictures 
of the year. Do you disagree with that? No, I think I came out with a list somewhere on I ranked all the best picture movies this year because I saw all of them in theaters. Yeah, this one was probably at the bottom of the list. It was close to the bottom. Yeah. So like, does does a movie need to have an intriguing story to be considered a best picture? I'd say no, because Moonlight won last year. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but, but, but I guess should it? Like, should it matter? Because technically, this movie was very beautiful. And and I want to talk a little bit about the cinematography before we move on. But the story and the writing was 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 pretty weak. And like you said earlier, considering the time period in which it took place, I mean, the brink of war, like the greatest world war that we've ever experienced as a human race in modern times. And it was kind of boring. Yeah. And I don't know if it's just us being Americans and not really knowing as much of the history and the importance of this maybe it was like a, a big deal for all the people in england um but for me i agree with you it's kind of underwhelming i think it would have been very similar movie if let's say i don't know i feel like daniel day lewis could have pulled this off maybe benedict cumberbatch <laughs> in old person makeup could have been an awesome winston church winston churchill i would have loved to see that michael kane i don't know <laughs> ian mckellen all right. I mean, yeah, four hours of makeup can, I guess, make anyone look like Winston Churchill. But uh, Judy Dench. <laughs> oh, hey, it's 2018. We can't assume gender, you know. But anyway, I don't know if I don't know if it was Gary Oldman that got this movie nominated. You're convinced that it is. I think it was a major contributor. I think the performance was huge for it. The cinematography. I didn't notice it as much the first time, but the the second time around, I I really enjoyed it. I think it was really well done. Um, there were the camera was there was always something going on. It was always moving. It was always very interesting, eventful. They really moved it in cool ways that kind of propelled the story. Normally, when you get these movies that are like performance based movies, there's not much else. You know, it's just the performance. We're here. Um, I thought the cinematography was awesome. And the production design was was very well done. So it, it had it had other things going for it. So I guess that was enough for uh, a Best Picture yeah. nomination. Yeah, and the cinematography sort of complemented the production design. They used a really deep, uh, like the depth of field was very large. Like I always could see uh, the details of the bookcase in the background or the the passerby on the street far behind the, you know, behind the main action in the foreground. And what I particularly liked was how they played with light and shadow to sort of exemplify the inner conflict that Winston Churchill was facing, which was, do I step out into the limelight and, you know, really take command of my country? Or do I really, do I want to slink backwards? Do I want to sue for peace? And I thought towards the end, he sort of steps into the light, ultimately, like he's he's spotlighted during his final speech. He's spotlighted in the scene in the basement when the king comes and visits him. And I thought all of that was done very purposefully, and I thought it was effective. Yeah, and uh, to go back to what you said about the cinematography complementing the production design, half of this movie was like a dolly shot, kind of moving through the scenes, and you always had some of that production design in the foreground, which is really cool, like in the king's office. It kind of dollies past the king's desk when Churchill and the king are kind of in the background. There's a lot of stuff like that where you just see things in the foreground. All the production design are kind of highlighted in this film, which is really cool. 
Yeah, and I thought that the, like, one of the weird, like, random things that I noticed was, like, like, the glasses, like, their cups were very crisp. Like, I could make out all the cuts of this crystal cup that they were drinking from, or I could see all the rust on trash cans that, you know— garbage men were throwing in a dumpster as Churchill's walking by like all these things were very they really popped like it was it was very saturated and I also noticed that early on they used a lot of natural light like whether it was real natural really natural light or whether it was you know played up to be natural light but like wide open windows and bright sunny days and then as we get towards the end of the film he's in his war bunker he's in a weird basement like what was that basement that he was in like he was in a bed in a basement what was that it's like fighting in a basement oh yeah like he's in a basement at one point just like (laughs) sitting there and then the wife comes in and then he stands up and he buttons his pants but he buttons them like between his nipples (laughs) like what is he doing oh my god he's buttoning his pants and it was like he was buttoning his pants like up around his neck (laughs) i mean that's what that's what the style was back in the day (laughs) i know but it's just so weird to see it like, oh, time to put my pants on. And it looks like he's like putting his necklace on, but he's like, he's like buckling <laughs> his pants. That's pretty funny. But even, even then, even then the source of light, it's, it's a, it's a dangling light bulb right above his head. So once again, even when he's, you know, alone in, in solitude, he's, he's spotlighted. But right at the end, when we're entering into war, it's a rainy day you know, the natural light is gone and we're entering into this dark period in European and world history. So I thought that that was brilliantly conveyed. And I would say that that was a stronger aspect of the film than, I mean, Gary Oldman was great, but I think that that was really what gave it its Oscar nomination. Were there any memorable shots you saw in this? Any Anything that kind of stood out? Like I said, the the dumpster shot was cool, and I really liked mm. the opening, the the introduction to Winston, which is, it's a pitch black room. He lights a cigar, and that and you know that's when he pops into the room, and then immediately after he lights his cigar, someone who you don't even see, whips back the curtains, and and the natural light blasts in. But it's done to in such a sense that it's almost like a a, a surreal moment because you don't know that someone else is in the room with him, and it's like he lights it, and then he's blasted with light, like. Here he is. Here's our protagonist. That was really cool. And I also liked later in that scene when his wife comes in and he goes from being this towering figure to basically like she sort of minimizes him in the room. Yeah, that's a good point you bring up. I feel like uh, him and his wife are always always at like an even level. Yeah, like any time that they're talking, he's kneeling down and she or she's standing up over him while he's sitting they, you know, you never, they're always like, um, you know, equal. And she sort of is the only one who puts him in his place, too. Yeah, yeah. I wish I saw more of her in the film. I really liked her performance. I thought she was great. I just, she wasn't like an integral, you know, we, we just talked about this earlier. Like, like her and Lily James, I thought were just not as important to the story as they could have been. No, and they don't go anywhere. I mean, no one goes anywhere in this story. So, like, if this was a not, like, all right, this is another thing. Like, it, it it weighs heavily on the fact that it's a true story. But if you take a true story, if you take that same story and you take the truth out of it, like say this was completely fictional, would it still stand on its own? And I'd say no. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I, th- I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, just to go back to cinematography for a second. I really liked, maybe it's cheesy, but I really liked the shot where he's on the plane and there's a kid looking up at him through his hand <laughs> and you see the plane through his hand and then you see Churchill 
hold his hand like to look through and then he just closes his hand and it's a transition oh yeah it's like a star wars transition <laughs> it's kind of like a star wars I thought that, no yeah i thought that was really cute uh <laughs> i really liked that moment yeah, for some cute. reason it stood out to me were there any shots that you didn't like because i didn't enj- i didn't like when they um did the they did these they did several shots where he's sitting and then they sort of crane up into infinity like they crane up super high so that there you can now you see the whole city now you see the whole country now you're like in outer space i thought that was kind of weird i i like that personally uh it didn't amaze it didn't amaze me but i thought it, i thought it helped you know paint the picture so the so one best actor gary oldman and then the only other thing it won was hair and makeup design oh yeah which, which think... is definitely <laughs> makeup design <laughs> Yeah, yeah, which was a lock. I mean, it was so much a lock that at the end of the film, in the credits, where they give you, like, the five important credits, hair and makeup was one of those credits. Oh, wow, uh, it, I didn't notice it, that. It says a lot. Yeah, it goes, like, directed by, starring, and then makeup. <laughs> it was like, that was <laughs> like, yeah, it was it was so important. Um, oh, can I, can, I just, can I just say that, like, when I first saw this, I was like, oh, I didn't know Edgar Wright directed this. <laughs> I was like, wow, that seems like out of this seems like an out of the box kind of choice for him. And then I realized it was Joe Wright. But okay, continue. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I thought the I thought the makeup was another one of those uh should win will win uh scenarios at the Oscars, so I'm happy uh they took home the award for that. The other three it was nominated for costume, cinematography, production design. I thought were all great, but not you know, not better than what won. So I think it got the two that it, it awards that it needed to get yeah i think so and 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 did you did you happen to see the poster for this movie because it the sort of it's not gonna say did you happen to see the post (laughs) yeah let's talk about the post really no like the poster for the movie is like it it has a quote from some review and it's like this is the movie that we that we need right now like shows a true leader and and blah 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 it didn't play that way to me it didn't play like this is exactly the the kind of movie that we needed i don't think that this is a movie that sort of exists in the time that it was released i think this is it i wouldn't say it was timeless because i don't think it's memorable enough to be considered a timeless movie but i don't think that it necessarily applies to today's climate yeah i'd agree with that so basically what it seems like is joe wright wanted to kind of make a statement like hey this is one of the best leaders we've ever had and you know um and trump sucks is kind of what what i was getting what he's getting at and what he's kind of said in interviews and stuff like that yeah i agree with you i don't i don't think that that makes any sense to me it's a very different time period i feel like neville chamberlain was probably a better leader but just not during war yeah and you have to consider like uh, the villain was um halifax and chamberlain who all they wanted was peace and that is that's what our protagonist is up against like yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and in hindsight yeah obviously that was hitler was a monster but at the time we're trying to protect all these people from invasion so peace makes a lot of sense in context but like they're asking us to view this from 2018 and be like you're an idiot. Why would you ever want peace with Hitler? He needs to be killed. Yeah, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense to me. So I I didn't get that. Uh, I guess you didn't get that feeling either. So we're definitely on the same page with that. Any snubs? Were there any things that should have been nominated for, or should have won, or maybe shouldn't have been nominated for? 
No, I think that um, nothing really stood out to me other than what what was nominated. I didn't consider the score to be incredibly strong. Um, there, there really was not. Like I said, I thought the writing was pretty weak. Um, it pretty much writes itself. I mean, again, it's it's one of those true stories that has a lot of intrigue. And they even play up the intrigue, and it still didn't necessarily land. The lone moment where I had any sort of feeling was it during the... Um, there's one scene where he is going to give his first radio broadcast as the prime minister. And he's making edits, which um, he was known to do in, in real life, is make edits right up until and even during his speeches. And um, the guy there is like, okay... Like, we have 10 seconds, you have to be ready. And he's like, shut the fuck up. Like, just give me a minute. And it's like, oh my God, you're "You're about to go on the air. And then uh, the clock strike, you see like a close-up of the clock, the clock strikes whatever time it is, and everything flips to red. Like, the whole room is bathed in red light. And I don't know why, but I got like a little bit of anxiety watching that, when in reality it wasn't that much of a, you know, exciting scene, but I thought it was done so well that I actually it elicited an emotional response. Yeah, that's a good point. That was a really good scene. Um, and that clock shot where they, where the camera's kind of like moving with the hand of the clock as a close-up, that was really cool. Yeah, but the stakes were he was just giving a speech. But I guess it was like that speech kind of got the morale going <laughs> for the British people. <laughs> yeah. and that was like huge. So you may think I'm crazy, but you know what this movie kind of really reminds me of? Uh, it reminds the me King's of the King's speech? <laughs> I, well, no, but uh, <laughs> not at all. No, it kind of reminds me of the Steve Jobs movie that came out a couple years ago. It was like <laughs> the whole movie was basically just like the moments leading up to like three or four different speeches. It was just like, okay, this is about to happen. This is about to happen. Speech. And then this is about to happen. This is about to happen. Speech. And then it ends with a speech. And it was just like it kind of the whole movie was just kind of gearing towards these very famous speeches um, so in that light, I, I felt like the the films were similar. I mean, I did not like the Steve Jobs movie. I thought it sucked. But um, this was like, this kind of reminded me of it. This is like the Winston Churchill version of it, I guess. <laughs> Churchill uh, Jobs. Yeah. And then one thing we didn't really touch on was those like transition points with like the dates. Oh. With like the clock. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a big, um, big, the date is like plastered across the screen and then it flips like a, an analog clock. I actually have nothing to say about that. I just, it's a very, uh, I guess it's kind of unique to the movie. It's something. <laughs> I guess. I mean, I, didn't 500 Days of Summer do that? Maybe. I, that, well, what a movie. Oh, my God. Was that nominated for Best Picture? No. Maybe. Tune in. Maybe. <laughs> Tune in. Okay. So, I think we're at a point where we can narrow down our search for next week's oh, movie. Oh, boy. So we're in the 80s, but what year will it be? Is there any particular year that you're hoping for? Well, this is interesting. Does anyone want to place bets? I did just come back from Vegas, and I hit big on a Ghostbuster slot machine at the airport right before I flew away. It was really good timing. I got this weird, like, slime ghost bonus. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice, yeah, man. if you check my Snapchat story, it's uh, kind of wild. Um, although by the time you hear this podcast, uh, you, you won't be able to see it. But for you, Matt, if you want to check, uh, I'm gonna go story. check it out right now. Sorry, sorry, everybody, you guys all missed out on the slime bonus. Um, okay, here we go. The envelope is being opened, and the podcast goes to smack dab in the middle. 1985. 1985. 19, so let's take a quick. 18. 1985. 
Go on. Sorry. <laughs> so we'll take a quick break, and when we come back, we will um, wrap things up, and we will list the possible films for next week, and then we will select the film for next week. We'll be right back. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. back to wrap things up here on the podcast goes to and bob what are your final thoughts on this movie did you like darkest hour i'd say i liked it but it was one of my least favorite of this this oscar year uh it was just a little a little uneventful for me to be honest and like it's world war ii winston churchill i feel like (laughs) a lot happened (laughs) so so overall not one of my favorites i did enjoy it any favorite lines from the movie? No, I guess the one that you said last week was sort of the best one of the whole movie. <laughs> My favorite was he just runs around the room shouting, Up your bum! Up your bum! Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was funny. That was probably the most Winston Churchill moment of the movie. Like, based on what I know about him, that's, that was probably one of the more genuine moments. Yeah, I'm just going to run around shouting that <laughs> for, the, for the next week or two. Man, you had your um, chance when you were in Vegas. You should have you been yelling it in Vegas. Oh, I was. I was. <laughs> I'm sure you were. Um, well, I also liked the movie, but I don't see its appeal to a general audience. Um, and I guess that that sort of reflected in the box office results. I mean, it made $56 million, so that's not a terrible haul. Um, 86 international and 142 total uh, worldwide. Yeah. So it did. It didn't do terrible, but um, like I can't imagine the average person finding this movie to be that interesting. If you were, if you're keen on history lessons, and if you're a big World War II guy, maybe. But I don't know. It, it was not very stimulating. No amphibian penises in sight in this one. <laughs> That's a uh, a shout out to our former film professor Keith Brown, who his only comment on our podcast was, uh, "It was racy." <laughs> so uh, I think this episode we turned it around for him a little, made it a little more PG. <laughs> so yeah, a little more film nerdy. Maybe by episode three we'll have that perfect in the middle where we talk about cinematography and boobs. <laughs> <laughs> we should do a porn cast. <laughs> no. About porn movies. Bob, no. Uh, they give awards for porn. That's <laughs> true. What they was do. that for? Uh, Don John. <laughs> they give movies awards. <laughs> okay. uh, anyway, yeah. So I think I think the the international uh, box office numbers kind of are, are are very telling. Um, yeah. It did what? It, you know, it wasn't a very interesting u.s movie but i can see how you know international crowds would cling to it um you know what the budget was uh no i'm not aware of what the budget was do you know no no i was hoping you'd know the answer to that okay hold on this is (laughs) this is the magic of um being able to cut (laughs) cut things out no this is making the cut this is not making the cut okay 30 million so you want to ask me again (laughs) 
No, no, no. This is all. This is all going to stay in this podcast. We're we're, we're rolling. <laughs> oh God, no. Yeah. So the budget was thirty million. <laughs> Interesting okay. how you just magically knew that. Uh, <laughs> Fuck you, Bob. <laughs> so. Okay, so it didn't really make that much money, I guess. Uh, Shape of Water did a lot better last week. <laughs> oh, but but people also sh- searched for Churchill, the 2007... What is this? A movie came out the same year called Churchill? Oh, my God. <laughs> it did. And they only made... They only, it only cost $10 million. And Brian Cox Ooh. played Winston Churchill. I think now we've proven your point. That if a different person were to play Winston Churchill, it would not get nominated for Best Picture because clearly Churchill, played by Brian Cox, did not get nominated. That's an interesting point. I still think Benedict Cumberbatch would have fucking nailed it, though. <laughs> this is interesting. This one takes place hours before D-Day. Okay, we should do so a it's super... like a sequel. Yeah, it's like the sequel. Like, this is Church. This is Darkest Hour 2. It's getting a... Gets, it's, Again, it's a little bit brighter, but it's still pretty dark. That's like, that's that's the, the tagline. <laughs> Darkest hour two, not so dark. <laughs> Nazi dark. <laughs> <laughs> too dark, too furious. <laughs> too dark, too dark, too furious. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So uh, on that note, I think we've said everything we could possibly say about this film. <laughs> Uh, so it's well, been a pleasure we're just in time yeah it's been real and i think the only thing left to do now is pick our movie for next week and we are picking a movie from 1985 Ooh, exciting i wasn't alive back then so uh i didn't watch that academy awards i did very interested either. to see what we get <laughs> yeah you're way so older than couple, me matt though <laughs> we have a couple pretty good options here um the nominees for next week's podcast are out of Africa, an early Meryl Streep film. The Color Purple. Kiss of the Spider Woman, which I am rooting for to win just based on the name alone. I it's a, it's admittedly have never heard a of it. A personal Kiss of favorite Spider-Woman. of mine. <laughs> I've never heard of it either, uh, but it's, uh, it's a good title. Prizzy's Honor and Witness, which you said that you've seen. Yeah, is that the, the Harrison Ford movie? Yeah, it is like a Harrison Ford movie. <laughs> so, the podcast goes to... Yes! Kiss of the Spider-Woman! Hit an upset! Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're so happy now, but this movie is probably so painful to watch. <laughs> and uh, tune in next week, and you'll hear us talk about it. Oh my goodness. It is starring William we're- Hurt. And uh, I am beyond excited for this. Uh, oh, my God. William Hurt won the Academy Award for Best Actor in this performance. So we have another Oscar-winning performance next week. And I'm sure it hurt to get there. Oh, I'm God. sure it William Hurt. <laughs> uh, we'll learn all about the other awards that it was nominated for, and we will break down Kiss of the Spider-Woman on next week's episode and until then i hope you guys enjoyed our analysis of darkest hour and we will see you all next time 